0: Amen. What a wonderful morning of worship it's already been. Thank you to Dr. Jim Ayler and Lauren Moody on the piano and to our choir. Goodness, you guys keep stepping it up in this interim time. You guys sound great and the, the loft is, is full and it's just great to see the, the church step up in times where we need people to step up. That happens in that way. Our missions committee had a meeting this morning scheduled for 8.30, but uh, there was kind of a medical emergency this morning at 8.30 in the North Foyer lobby, and they ended up ministering uh, to a person who needed uh, some ministering, too, during that meeting. And when I talked to Dr. Dunn afterwards, he said, instead of a missions committee meeting, we had a mission. <laughs> I thought that was so beautiful. I love when the church acts as the church, and thank you for being the body of Christ to those who need it. Uh, I saw people welcoming guests today and just uh, wrapping their arms around people and, and inviting them in, uh, people who need help, people who are hurting. Um, I just heard about the men's Sunday school class helping out uh, someone in need. It's just great to see that. So I love being a pastor. I love being pastor specifically of Woodmont Baptist Church. This is an incredible family of faith. There's a lot of fun things that I get to do as a pastor. I love uh, you know, VBS, getting to counsel children, getting to, to lead them to the Lord, getting to uh, visit with, with visitors and, and take them to lunch. I had this line item in the budget that said pastoral ministry when I came here. And I said, what is, what is that line item for? And they said, that's, you know, taking people out to lunch and stuff. And I said, that's great. So right, if you, if you want to go get lunch, just come see me. I'll be in the North foyer afterwards. I got a budget for that. I'll take you somewhere nice. I love getting to do premarital counseling. At one point last year, there were six couples that I was simultaneously doing premarital counseling for, and I love it. It's a precious time for me. It's an important time for them and special for me, and I have buddies who are pastors, and they were like, Nathan, you gotta delegate some of that stuff out. You can't be doing all that yourself, and I'm like, well, I'm gonna do it because I love it, and it's just one of those things I get to do as pastor. I have that privilege and honor, but one thing I didn't, no, I was getting into when I, I got this gig was all these funerals that we've had. Funerals aren't as, as fun as, as getting to stand up here and, and pronounce husband and wife. That's a fun thing I get to do. But funerals can, can weigh on you. Last December, we had 10 saints of this church who transitioned from this life into the next And that weighed heavy on on my heart. Some of them had lived a long, full life and left an incredible legacy of Christian faith behind, but others, their bodies were ravaged by cancer, and and some were gone all too soon, of course, and not expected, and that was a shock to the family, of course, to our family of faith here as well. But I've discovered that, that being there for families in times of loss is one of the greatest privileges also that I have as pastor, Being able to speak words of truth and and hope and healing in those times. Being able to hopefully be a life-giving presence. Sometimes, most often even, it's not even through saying anything. It's just by being present with them in those times and grieving with them. And at first, I struggled with what to say in a funeral, especially if I didn't get to know some of these saints very well. What do you, what do you say in times like that? But I've learned that the best thing that I can say in a, in a time of loss is to talk about Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. In the funeral messages that I've prepared, I just make sure that I talk about Jesus because it's Jesus who makes all the difference when it comes through to going through a hard time like a grief or a loss. If you're here today and you've lost a loved one recently, if you're in a particularly hard season right now, maybe you've lost a marriage, maybe you've lost a job, maybe you've lost a friendship, whatever it may be today when we talk about loss, I pray that today's word will bring true hope and true healing to you as we talk about Lazarus and more more importantly the Savior who raised him from the dead. It's a long text, okay? Here's my warning. It's, it's 46 verses. It's the longest passage in the entire year in John that we're going to cover. So if you aren't up for it today, please don't feel pressured to stand. But if you are willing and able, if you will stand in honor of God's word as we read John chapter 11, verses 1 through 46, hear now the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews who had had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You made it. Congratulations. Sit down. You know, as I drive through Nashville these days, it's 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 kind of sad how dependent I am upon uh, my cell phone. Um, you know, the new hands-free law in Tennessee. Uh, we we got these little mounts in our car for our phones uh, to to put on our dashboard. And it's, it's pretty pathetic. Even if I'm driving to church from my house, it's about seven minutes maybe by car, uh, I will still put the address for Woodmont Baptist Church into my phone because my phone knows things that I don't know. My phone, for example, knows what the traffic is like on Hillsborough Road. And if you've ever driven through Green Hills at any time of day, you may have noticed it's crowded, and my phone has these amazing, uh, different routes that it likes to take me on. These these back streets, I'll cut over on Castleman, and then come back over on uh, you know all these different. You know, I'll come out on Hampton somehow, and, and be right here in the backyard of the church, like that. You know, my, my phone has a perspective that I don't have. It sees the road ahead by miles and miles. It sees what the traffic is doing and it knows all these lovely side streets. If you live on one and people are cutting through your side street, I'm sorry. Blame it on my uh, navigation app. I apologize. I don't speed, hopefully, on your street, but uh, I do cut through it. Why do I use my phone to navigate? Well, again, it, it has a greater perspective that on my own, I'm unable to have in my limited capacity as a human. I'm not able to see the things that my phone sees through GPS, through uh, crowdsourcing navigation, through an app called Waze. I'm not a paid endorser. I think Google owns it now. If they want to give me an endorsement, that's fine. Waze knows if the interstate is backed up. It knows if the side streets under construction, it it takes me a certain way, It, it knows a better path. In this passage in John, we see the perspective of Mary and Martha from a ground level, worldly, human perspective. And then we see the perspective that Jesus has. And perspective makes all the difference. Our perspective on death, our perspective on hard times, how we see things becomes our reality. Perspective is our reality. So will we see things in Jesus's perspective or will we lean on our own limited understanding? We just finished this long section in John where Jesus is confronting these Jewish authorities in Jerusalem. Now we're in a transition passage as we look towards the cross and the last supper together and the passion narrative. And these authorities were actively trying to kill Jesus. They were looking for a way to arrest him and to have him crucified. So at the end of chapter 10, we see that Jesus takes off for the wilderness with his disciples back out across the Jordan River to the place where John the Baptist was ministering. And his ministry continues to flourish out there. People flock to him and they say, everything that John the Baptist said about this guy is true. But then a a personal emergency a crisis arises. While he's out in the desert, he hears that his good friend Lazarus has become seriously ill. And Lazarus was a part of this family that's very near and dear to the heart of Jesus. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, lived in this little town called Bethany. I was talking to Kathy Wallace. She was saying that you can't hardly get to it these days because it's on the west bank. It's a couple miles west of uh, Jerusalem on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and if you go over to Israel these days, it's tricky to, to navigate through the Palestinian authorities and stuff to get over there. But this is the same Mary and Martha that we read about in the other Gospels, where, where Martha is the, the busy bee who's always running around cooking and, and cleaning and, and getting things organized, and, and Mary just loves to, to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him talk. But they're, they're obviously good friends of Jesus' It's, it's almost like a little retreat, like a safe place outside of the city of Jerusalem that Jesus can just get away and be with these people that he loves as friends. It's a deep kind of love, that kind of friendship love with this family. These are people that in his humanity that Jesus likes to be around, that he's comfortable with, that he's safe with, that he enjoys their home. So naturally, when Lazarus becomes seriously sick, they send word for their friend Jesus to come. Verse three says the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Have you ever seen the the mural at St. Thomas West? If you park in the the parking garage and walk across the sky bridge at St. Thomas, there's a a mural at St. Thomas West Hospital. And it it has a picture of, of, of Mary and Martha, two women, And their brother, laying across his head, is in their lap. And it says, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And I'm always reminded when I see that mural of this story and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This message is not a request. It's it's an assumption. They're not saying, will you come, Jesus? They're naturally assuming that because Jesus loves them and their brother, that he, as soon as he, the all powerful Son of God, Messiah that he is, as soon as Jesus hears that his good buddy's in need, surely he would immediately drop whatever he's doing and, and hurry there to heal him before he dies. But verse 4 shows us that Jesus has another perspective on what's happening here. It says in verse 4. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Really? It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. It does not lead to death, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay, I I, I read that and think, okay, cool. Jesus has a plan, it's not gonna lead to death. His illness, he's not gonna die, he says, right? It's gonna be that God's glorified. I'd say, okay, great, let's go and heal that guy up so we can glorify God and everybody will be amazed at your amazing power, Jesus. Come on, let's get to Bethany as quick as we can. But look at verse five. This is a mind-blowing verse. Verse five, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. He loved them, so he stayed put and did nothing. What? It says that because Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, he stayed put for two days in the wilderness. He wasn't doing nothing. He was ministering in the wilderness. When the sisters sent word to Jesus that he whom you love is ill, they they used the word phileo, for love. It, It means in a deep friendship kind of way, like a brotherly love as a friendship. He whom you love like a brother is sick. But when it says here that Jesus loved Martha and Mary, it uses the word agape. Agape is the the highest form of love. It's completely selfless, sacrificial gift kind of love. It's a godly love that never gives up and always looks for the best of the other. It's the highest form of love. It means that Jesus loved these people so much that he stayed away for two days. Oftentimes at ground level, in our limited perspective, it seems like Jesus has given up on us, like he doesn't really care. It seems like the only explanation for what we're going through is that Jesus has gone away and no longer has our best interests at heart. Even though Jesus has promised never to leave us nor forsake us, the circumstances of our actual day-to-day lives seem to leave no other explanation than the fact that we've been abandoned by him. But this chapter helps to elevate our perspective Kent Hughes says in his commentary on John that as, as Jesus' dearly beloved, praying, devoted children, no matter how it may appear, God actually loves us enough to delay. These inexplicable delays in our lives are delays of love. It's hard to believe that God actually loves us sometimes when we're going through the ringer in this life. But this text says it's precisely because Jesus agape loved that he waited to go to Bethany. Why? How is that loving? Why did he wait for two days for Lazarus to die? Because Jesus knew in his higher unlimited perspective that by waiting, he would then be able to demonstrate his amazing power and amazing love at the same time in such a way that would transform the lives of everybody there, including you and me who read this text this morning. We have to trust that Jesus' perspective is higher than our perspective, that he knows better than we do, when it comes to what's best for us. So when Jesus finally arrives in in Bethany, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. All hope of recovery is out the window by this point. He's decomposing. It's interesting here that the the busy bee, Martha, who's kind of the more aggressive sister, comes running out of the city in in a huff, For the last few days, she's been waiting and and wondering when Jesus is going to show up. When is he going to come riding into town and heal her brother? But he never showed up, and now it's too late. So when she hears that Jesus is outside of town, she runs out, and look at verse 21. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's an accusation. She's accusing God, the sovereign God of the universe, to his face, as Jim read earlier. She's frustrated, and that's okay. Jesus can handle her frustration. Have you ever felt like God was against you? He doesn't say, Martha, Martha, whoa, you don't get it. You don't know what you're talking about. You are very limited in your perspective. Just relax and be quiet. That's not what he says. He's not against her. He even though he didn't show up, he hadn't forgotten about her. But she felt like he had abandoned her family. There's an old song that came out by the fray years ago that reminds me of this here. It says, I found God on the corner of first and Amistad. And I said, where you been? He said, ask anything. I said, where were you when everything was falling apart? All my days spent by the telephone that never rang and all I needed was a call that never came. And then the bridge says, early morning, city breaks. I've been calling for years and years and years. You never left me no messages. You never send me no letters. You got some kind of nerve. And then the chorus says, lost and insecure. You found me lying on the floor. Where were you? Surrounded, surrounded. Why'd you have to wait? Where were you just a little late? Why'd you have to wait to find me? It's a raw, honest song. Now let's be clear before we go any further. God is God. He's completely good. He's completely sovereign. He's completely holy and perfect and righteous and should always be addressed with reverence, right? The fear of the Lord, that kind of holy reverence and awe is always appropriate. It's the beginning of Wisdom of how to live a godly life. But that doesn't mean that in order to be good Christians, we're not allowed to come to God with our honest, raw uh, emotions, our innermost feelings, and express them honestly to God. Our feelings aren't necessarily right, but they're in there, and God can handle them. When when we bring our honest, you know, gut-level feelings to God, he has a way of gently taking them like a good, good father. And and, and slowly, lovingly turning our selfish, whiny accusations and complaints and turning them into praise. I love to read the Psalms ever since Donald Whitney was here. I've been reading through the Psalms uh, in the mornings and and, and over half the Psalms are lament Psalms. It's, it's interesting, they're, they're cries of, of accusation. God, how long will you turn your back to me? God, how long will you hide your face from me? God, how long will you let my enemies triumph over me? God, where, where have you been? It's, the, it's scripture, but it's calling God out to his face. And, and usually at the end of these Psalms, the psalmist heart begins to soften as he comes to the Lord with his complaints, because the Lord hears his complaints. The Lord cares about his complaints. We're commanded in Scripture to cast our cares on him because he cares for us. God can handle whatever we're going through, God can take it. The important thing is to take it to the Lord. I love Job and Habakkuk, you know, Habakkuk complains. He doesn't even know God at the beginning, but towards the end of the book, he says, I will offer a sacrifice of praise, though the the birds be gone from the air, though the crop not appear in the field, I will still praise him. Or Job, who says, though he slay me, yet I will praise him. So Jesus doesn't rebuke Martha. He doesn't put her in her place. He lovingly, compassionately tells her, in verse 23, words of hope, your brother will rise again. To which Martha says, I know that he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. It's like she's saying, yeah, yeah, I know about the resurrection of the dead. I'm a good Hebrew. I've, I've learned this stuff, you know, and she didn't go to Jewish school because girls couldn't, but she was a, a, studier, a student of scripture. She knew about the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, but what about now? What about right now? She's hurting, she's grieving in the present moment with her brother's death. And Jesus gives this amazingly beautiful I am statement in verse 25. I am the resurrection present with you now. And the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's why he can say this illness does not lead to death. Do you believe this? And before we're too hard on Martha, she she gives this amazing confession of faith in verse 27. She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who is coming into the world. We talk about Peter's confession in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Jesus says in King James, thou art the Christ. And it's this powerful moment, this great confession that Peter makes. How about Martha? Here's a, a woman who in the midst of great personal suffering demonstrates the highest theological realization and an unshakable faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. But Mary, she doesn't hear any of this. Mary is still sitting on the floor. Mourners would sit around on the floor of the house of the deceased and they would just cry and grieve. And she can't bring herself to to get up off the floor. I've been there. Jesus calls for her. So Mary comes out and says something similar to Martha. But instead of speaking it to his face, like Jim read earlier, she cries it to his feet. Verse 32 says, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And then we see Jesus's response. It's not a theological treatise like Jim read earlier. It's sympathy. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. The word that's translated here as deeply moved comes from an ancient Greek word that means something like when a horse snorts. It it means that Jesus had a gasp, an involuntary gasp that was proof of his inner grief. The King James Version says that he groaned in his spirit. He has a visceral, physical reaction to the sorrow of his friends. <clears throat> so then Jesus composes himself. and in verse 34, he asked, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the shortest verse of all of scripture, he can't keep it together anymore. Verse 35, Jesus wept. It doesn't mean that he screamed and wailed. It means that tears of genuine sorrow ran down his face, even though he knew what was coming. He knew this was for their good. But as Jim mentioned earlier, we have a God. We have a Savior who loves us so much that he delays, that he stays away, who at times allows us to go through suffering and sadness. And then he comes and enters into our sorrow with us. He gets down on the floor with us and cries. So if you're hurting today, please know two things today. First, that Jesus has a plan in mind, that his delays are delays of love. He has your best interest at heart and ultimately his glory. And two, Jesus grieves with you. He weeps with you. So Jesus goes, he's, he's weeping as he goes to the tomb And he orders the stone that's covering the entrance to be moved away. That's a preview of Easter Sunday, isn't it? And Martha, again, the aggressive one, is like, whoa, 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 bad idea, Jesus. Don't don't do that. Okay, he's been dead for four days. There's gonna be a terrible stench. I love the King James Version, again, says, he stinketh, hilarious. Martha didn't understand. Jesus didn't wanna go in and look at a dead body. In fact, Jesus didn't want to go in the tomb at all. He wasn't there to weep over a dead person in the grave. He was there to bring life out of the grave. He wanted to bring healing in God's life and reveal God's glory as he always does. So look at verse 40. Jesus said to her, did, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know you always hear me, and I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And stumbling out into the sunlight, wrapped up like a mummy, comes Lazarus. And I can just imagine the the, the crowd of mourners uh, their reaction as the sisters come forward and, and peel the linens off his face, and as they rejoice and hug and have their brother back, the, the funeral party has become a, a party party. <laughs> the emphasis here, though, is not on Lazarus. The text doesn't mention his reaction or what he says, it's all about Jesus and, and his amazing goodness and grace. Verse 45, many of the Jews who'd come with Mary, had seen what He did, believed in Him. Then others went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The, the funeral gathering again had become a celebration of life, not a mourning of death. Perspective is huge, isn't it? Our perspective is our reality. As Christians, we know that all suffering one day will end. It's not forever. Death itself will die. Revelation 21, we have this hope in Christ. At the end of all things, verse four, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. I know we have... Several people in our congregation who struggle with chronic pain, pain itself will die someday. Nor for the former things have passed away. So will we choose to go through life with this eternal perspective in mind? Will we have the perspective of Jesus? who shows us that even his delays are delays of agape love or will we choose to go through life with our limited view of what only we can see through the windshield. I was talking to Catherine Chambers about the, the plane in Dominica. She's going with our group in August. They have to take a little puddle jumper airplane from Puerto Rico over to Dominica. and She said there's no navigational systems on that little plane, just flying by sight whatever the pilot can see. When Garney took me on his plane, he had all the tools, man. I could see every plane for miles around, all the, the radar, the satellite images. He had his iPad, showed the glide radius. If, if God forbid an engine shut down, how far we could glide to. All the tools there, I felt totally safe. It was a totally smooth flight, smooth landing. It was great. But to navigate through life without any of those tools is a severely limited perspective. I don't recommend it. Will we trust that God's delays are actually for our good and for his glory, that he's present with us in our suffering in a very intimate way? Will we let John 11 here remind us that we can have that eye in the sky perspective that enables us to navigate life with a higher view, knowing more than we do, Will we also remember that death is not the end? That our Lord has conquered death and the grave forever and he holds the keys over death and Hades forever. Although the thief may come, like Trey said, to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus always comes to bring life and to bring it to the fullest, to call us out of the grave, to take the grave clothes off and step into his marvelous light. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I thank you that you did not abandon us to the grave just like you didn't abandon Lazarus. That when you showed up, you knew that you were going to call him out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. God, I know there's so many people here who are suffering, who have lost loved ones, who are dealing with pain, who are suffering all kinds of of physical, mental, emotional, social ailments, God remind us that your plan is always for our good and for your glory. That even when it seems like you've abandoned us, you haven't, but that you love us with this persistent agape love that will never let us go, and that will always bring life. That our enemy is trying to destroy us, but you have defeated him already. He's been dealt a a mortal mortal blow, and he will not win at the end, that death will not have the final say, but you will bring life to those who believe in your name, who trust in your ability to raise us up from the dead, to call us out of the tomb, and to give us abundant life both now and forever. God, forgive us for trying to navigate through our own windshields, trying to do life with our limited perspective. May we trust in you as we place our faith in you alone. Give us a heart of faith that fully gives ourselves from our heads to our toes over to you, trusting that you know more than we do, that you see the road ahead in ways we could never imagine, and that you have our best interest at heart, and more importantly, You're redeeming this world back unto yourself and you wanna use us to be a part of that. God, we thank you for your word. We pray this in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Maybe you're here today and you just realize that you need prayer, that you are feeling like you've been grieving on the floor and you wanna come to the altar this morning and just bring your body to where your heart is. I'm gonna ask Trey, I'm gonna ask Morgan if you'll come up here and stand here. Rachel, if you're here, I think I saw her. She may have been gonadizing with the kids. Uh, but if you want to pray with someone, they'll be here to pray with you. If you just want to come kneel at the altar too, maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're ready to make that decision like those girls did at camp with Trey or like those kids did at VBS. I'd love to talk with you about that. Maybe you want to join Woodmont. Maybe you want to be baptized. Maybe you have something that you just want to pray uh, about. Whatever it is you need to do today, uh, bring yourself just as I am is our hymn of invitation. Will you stand and sing with us now?